I'm home. This is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look into video gaming from the classic era until today. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 18 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Um, as far as gaming goes, I haven't been doing too much. Um, playing a little emulation here and there. Nothing that I have on Steam is really catching my fancy right now. Sort of in a gaming malaise, if you will. Um, I don't have the funds to go to the arcade in Brighton. And, uh, I haven't hit pinball pizzas of late. Um, I did, I mentioned it in episode 17, but... I did finally check out Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum. Um, I'm going to consult my list of places to check out in uh, the Detroit area. And probably the end of this week, uh, this being uh, Saturday, October 26th when I'm recording this, uh, I'll probably head out there after work on Friday and check this place out. Uh, check a place out and see what it is and, you know, give my impressions and so forth and then just go from there. So, as always, stay tuned. Um, I check my emails. My email box is empty. Um, if you want to get a hold of the show and contribute or have suggestions or anything of that nature, just get a hold of me at Arcade Brian. Ugh, edit. Just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, there's a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Also, there is a strong social media presence. Uh, Facebook, just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. And by the way, thank you to all those who have liked and followed that page um i check facebook every day not just for the podcast but for to keep in touch with friends and to uh you know check out and check you know check back with family and so forth um so i see people you know a few here a couple here five here six here three here and liking and following the page and i want to thank each and every one of you that are listening um, also, you can get a hold of me on Twitter at ArcadeAddict underscore B. At Instagram, it is at ArcadeAddictBrian. And Tumblr is Tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So, if you want to get a hold of the show and speak your mind, as long as you're civil about it, say what you will. I'm here for you. So, with all that done, let's move on to the show. I've got quite a bit to discuss, so let's get right into it. Let's go into top tens. Top tens, 1987. Now, let's see, 1987, I'm now 18 years old. Although, if I'm going to be brutally honest about myself, I may be 18 physically, but I'm more like 15 you know, mentally and emotionally. I was a bit of a late bloomer that way. I'm still hanging out at the arcades as much as I can. 
you know, now, let's see, I want to say in August of 87, that's when I got, uh, got my job at CVS, and I was with them for almost two years after that. And once I did that, and thanks to my best friend Rob, who, you know, put in a good word with me with the manager and got me the job, I was able to, you know, uh, make a little money for myself, contribute back to the house with my, you know, my grandfather and my mother at the time, and also, you know, have some money to kick around with. It wasn't a lot. I think I was working part-time to begin with. I didn't, I don't think I went close to full-time until probably sometime in 88, but um, either way, I had a little bit of pocket change now. Um, and so, yeah, I'm still collecting comic books. I'm still, you know, like I said, going to arcades wherever I can and, you know, going out, you know, hanging out with friends and so forth. You know, the typical teenage stuff. Uh, let's see. Uh, like I've been noting in each of the years in top tens, especially after 1983, uh, arcades were on a slow decline. Uh, 87 is no different. Um, arcades were not um they weren't conducting a lot of business during the day until probably like i'd say probably about quitting time for you know people who are working or maybe even after school uh for you know high school students and so forth um i was still before i got the the job that i had i was still hanging out the malls and arcades as much as I could. So, you know, I saw that business was st still on the decline. But, and the other thing I also noticed that there weren't that many, uh, no, let me rephrase that. There were good games coming out, but they were not as frequent as they were in past years. Um, it took me a little while to, um, comprise this list and the lists to come because like I said there weren't as many good games coming out but they were there it's just they were also spread out amongst the locales that I would frequent so I didn't see as see them in all in one spot I would see them in different places but anyway let's get right on to it as always this is a top 10 in no particular order um just I felt these were the best games that came out in that year. So let's get right to it. Afterburner. This, I think, was the game of 1987, in my own opinion. It was uh, released by Sega. It was another one of their, I want to call it Mode 7 games or something like that. I should just look this up. But it's a particular uh, processing uh a method of processing that you know made it that gave a really good 3d effect for their games like you know afterburner um uh space harrier outrun uh hang on and super hang on um and it, it just made for a really good arcade game experience and afterburner was no different now um trying to remember the first place i saw afterburner i I think it was the News Corner, believe it or not. It was either News Corner or it was Milford Rack. It was one of the two. Um, but this game was just fantastic to play. I mean, of course, this is following the 
massive success of the movie Top Gun, which came out in 1986. Um, just like in Top Gun, you are flying an F-14 Tomcat fighter through various stages. Um, you're dealing with enemy aircraft of all kinds. They're trying to shoot you down. They're trying to hit you with missiles. And the trick was to draw enemy fire to the spot where you were and then peel away uh, from that fire from the enemy missiles or gunfire so that you could uh, actually return fire. And of course, um, there was a crosshairs, uh, you know, that not even a crosshair, but it was a, a aiming reticle. That's what it was. It was an aiming reticle that you would put it over an enemy aircraft that was, you know, coming towards you. Then it would like turn into like a red X. You would press the missile button on the top of the control stick and it would fire missiles um, at that and destroy them. Um, you also had um, you also had uh, guns that was a trigger on the control stick, and you also, of course, had your thrust uh, control, which was you know. Uh, which would slow your, uh, if you pushed up, you would slowly, it would slow your fighter down, and when you pulled back on it, it would trigger afterburners. Um, of course, the thing that a lot of people love to do with this game is to make your fighter barrel roll. It was, it was a great way to avoid enemy fire. Um, basically, you would quickly move the joystick to in one direction then you would jam it to the opposite direction and your fighter would do a barrel roll um it didn't make your fighter immune to enemy fire you could still get shot down in the middle of it but it, it was a really cool effect i mean the stand-up version of afterburner was uh awesome enough but i actually was able to i'm trying to remember where it was it was an arcade in florida if i'm not mistaken but that was the first time i actually uh played an afterburner uh sit down and that one of course would move the uh move the entire machine up and down as you as you were moving your fighter up and down it was mechanically controlled that way and that was just in completely different experience altogether i mean it's this was the one of the best games if not the best game of 1987 in my opinion okay avengers <laughs> this one i thought was something else but when i decided to do some research into some of these games because i haven't played some of these games in 30 years plus um i found out this was a vertically scrolling beat-em-up by capcom this wasn't what I thought it was. I thought this was uh, Captain America and the Avengers, Avengers, but that game did not come out until 1991. But I do remember playing this. Um, it's more or less a combination of like uh, Kung Fu Master and uh, Gunsmoke. Uh, basically, you are a fighter trying to defeat the boss of this massive gang and you're rescuing uh damsels in distress as you're doing so um you have punches and kicks um there are various types of enemies that some of them will try to grab you and like headbutt you and do damage some will throw um explosives at you some will throw uh projectiles at you and so on and so forth um and they're also just like in Gunsmoke, there are these 
garbage cans uh, strewn around the levels that you can uh, shatter with your punches and kicks to get power-ups. And, you know, the, it just goes on like that. I mean, I remember playing this game. I wasn't good at it then, but, you know, I just played it for research today, and I actually did pretty well. Um, but, yeah, this is one of those I've only seen in one or two places. Um, I think the first... I think um, Bolarama's game... They got it for their game room for a little while. I think that's where I saw it. Um, because I remember uh, Mark got me into this game. But, yeah, it was. it's a really cool game. Um, different, but using some of the same, uh, some of the same elements that, uh, Capcom vertical scrollers were famous for, you know, starting with, like, 1942. But, anyway, yeah, it's a good game. Blades of Steel. This is the hockey version of Double Dribble, pretty much. Um, as a matter of fact, if I was to be completely honest about it, it's a hockey version combining elements from both super basketball and double dribble um it's like you would think it's you're a hockey team uh five on five um and basically um it's the same thing it's timed um each uh quarter you put in gives you a minute of time but there's a, a little bit of a difference in this one when you score a goal on the enemy or on enemy on the opposition's goalie you get 30 seconds added to your time. If they score on your goalie, you lose 10 seconds. And I played a full game. Um, the first time I played Blades of Steel in the arcade since probably 1987, because I don't, I think I may maybe spend about a dollar on it because I just wasn't good at it. Um, I didn't understand hockey at the time, you know. But then again, I'm an you know 18 year old kid, so you know I wasn't really into watching hockey a lot, even though there was plenty of opportunity. You know, we had the Madison Square Garden network on our cable system, but anytime I saw an Islanders or a Rangers game, I just wasn't uh, very interested. I wanted to watch the Knicks or the Nets. You know, I was much more of a basketball guy. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so, like I said, if you score on their team, you get 30 seconds added to your time. If they score on you, you lose 10 seconds. Um, of course, the uh, attraction for Blades of Steel is that you can actually fight. <laughs> you know, if you check somebody or you know, they check you or something like that, you can actually entangle and start uh, a fist fight. Uh, just like in a real hockey game, where they'll use one hand to grab the other person's jersey, and then they'll deliver punches with the other hand. Um, and it's just the same way in Blades of Steel. And you basically have to inflict uh, enough damage to knock out your opponent before your opponent knocks you out. Basically what happens is if you're, you get knocked out, or whoever gets knocked out in the, in the fist fight... Uh, they get control of the puck. So, yeah, I mean, I played a full game just to remember what it was like. And, well, I've played several hockey games over the years, so I know what's going on. So I actually did fairly well, although I lost, what, 15 to 14 uh, playing a full game. So, yeah, Blades of Steel. It's a great game. A lot of people swore by the uh, 
Nintendo Entertainment System version of this game, but the arcade game is superior, of course. Uh, that goes without saying. Uh, Contra. Um, pff, what more do I need to say about this game? I mean, it was fairly popular in, in the arcades. Um, there were a couple of places. I know um, Milford Rec had it. Um, the News Corner got it for a little while. Um, but it didn't really get famous until it came out for the Nintendo Entertainment System. And once it did, I think it came out for the NES in like 1988 or something. Um, I'd have to look it up. But yeah, I mean, everybody who is a gamer knows about this game. He has either played it or has seen it played. Um, let's see, there are several uh, versions of this game going from the arcade version to the NES version to Super Contra for the Super Nintendo system, which came was like one of the first games that came out in like uh, 1991. But yeah, there I think there's yeah there's another uh, sequel to Contra. I just can't remember what it is. The Japanese name for Contra is uh, Grizor. Um, it came out as Grizor in Japan, and they changed it to Contra when it came to the U.S. That was fairly common for a lot of uh, video games in that era. So yeah, Contra. Double Dragon. Now, if Afterburner wasn't the best game of 1987, Double Dragon certainly was. I mean, in my eyes, it's 1 and 1A. You could interchange these two games, you know, as often as you want. You know, they're both excellent. This, of course, was one of the first real true beat-em-ups. Uh, a legendary beat-em-up, of course... They made a movie about it. Uh, there are at least three sequels. I think three, if not more. Um, but yeah, I love this game. I mean, I've played it obsessively in the arcade, on emulation, on the NES. Uh, they did do Super Double Dragon for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. I played that. Um... My favorite, of course, is Double Dragon 2, which I will get to. Uh, that's one of my top tens for, what What year was that? 1990? No, 1989, I think. But we'll, we'll see. Okay, so, I mean, what more do I need to say about it? It's Double Dragon. I mean, one of the best fighting games of all time. You know, bar none. I mean, I put that this game up against any other fighting game, including Street Fighter 2, which I think is the best of all time. That deserves its place in at least the top five, in my opinion. Okay, Flying Shark. This one is a shooter, vertically scrolling shooter. This is when vertically scrolling shooters really started coming into their own, at least in my opinion. Uh, with this one... You basically, it's, you know, the, about the typical of each one. I mean, this one is, uh, you're flying a World War II biplane that's kind of s special looking, let's say. And you're basically trying to, you know, defeat the big boss at the end by going through various stages. Um, all you have are your guns and your uh, bombs. Uh, 1942, of course, kind of started this genre, really. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but 
uh, that's the game that really kind of kind of brought the vertically scrolling shooters into uh, into their own. But Flying Shark was another good one. And as you go through each stage, you would destroy enemy red formations to get power-ups to uh, power up your guns. And the more power-ups you got, the wider your firing arc became. And that's good because the game gets really hard really fast. And just like most Japanese shooters, they can be really unforgiving. Um, but it is fun to play. It's not my favorite. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's still kind of fun to play. I still mess around with it in emulation from time to time. Uh, Gondomania. This one really captured my imagination because this was basically like uh, Star Wars speeder bikes. Um, Data East put this out, and I think this is a really good game. I mean, it flies under the radar because it just doesn't have the... Uh, the uh, notoriety that a lot of other games that came out in this year have. Um, basically what it is, is that you are flying a speeder bike and you're going through various stages. Um, you have a control stick, which has an eight-way uh, gun turning, uh, eight-way gun turning, uh, uh, control on the top of the stick and of course you got your fire buttons um this one is different because as you defeat enemies they leave coins on the ground and you pick up those coins and then you can actually as you're going through the stage there will be spots where they'll have certain weapons or certain um uh power-ups on the ground and you basically pick them up in exchange this a certain amount of coins for them um a lot of the weapons are um they don't have a certain uh number they have you know limited uh um what's the term i want to use they basically have a limit to how many uh shots you can use with them and of course you know depending on what kind of weapon it is they have different effects some are long range uh some are like fireballs some are bombs and things like that so as you're going through further and further through the game as you're def killing enemies and picking up their uh picking up the coins they leave um you're able to continually power up your speeder bike and it can get a little hectic <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've never finished this game. I mean, I loved playing it. I mean, uh, Carl Graf's record store was the first place I saw it. Uh, the News Corner got it for a little while. And um, I think, no, there was a, an arcade in Orlando. I think it was the Fun Machine. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was. Uh, I think it was the Fun Machine that had Gondomania. And that was like the first time I had played it since I'd left Connecticut. I still play in emulation too, you know, but it's a little bit of a pain in the butt getting the controls, uh, getting the controls right. So yeah, Gondomania, one of my all-time favorites from this era, and quite honestly, it's underrated as a game. Uh, Twin Cobra. This one is one of my, this one is my favorite uh, vertically scrolling shooter. Um, you are a helicopter pilot you're piloting your chopper through various levels you know again trying to defeat the 
uh, boss at the end. I mean, it's pretty much the same premise as most uh, vertically scrolling shooters of the time. But in this one, it was different because with this one, you could actually um, choose what style of firepower you wanted to uh, utilize against the enemy. Um, you started with the red shots, which turned out to be like um, like small missiles. And as you kept powering up your uh, helicopter, the shot, the uh, area of shots would get wider. It would just be like this, you know, it would just get really silly towards when you maxed out the firepower. Um, then you had the green, which was like uh, laser machine guns, which gave you a really, really strong, uh, air, really, really strong, uh, field of fire, but the field was very limited. It was only, you know, at least two green beams coming from your, uh, chopper. I mean, as you, once you maxed it out, the destructive power was really good, really high, but unfortunately you had to line your shots up with the, with the enemies. I mean, it was good for killing bosses cause you could go through the boss, uh, uh, enemies fairly quickly if you knew what you were doing, but it wasn't my favorite. My favorite was the next one. It was the blue ones, which would fan out in like, it started at like a 45 degree arc and the arc would just increase as you powered it up. And also the shots you would, you would, uh, you would, uh, and you know, um, emit from your chopper, uh, they would get, they would have more and more destructive power, at, you know, towards the end. Um, that's my favorite. I would go through like two thirds of the game with just those. Um, and of course, the last one is the yellow one, which would shoot in four directions. Um, the power, the power up sequence was like it would uh, increase the firepower for you know shooting forward first, then it would do the sides, then the rear. And after a while, and once you max that out, it was like equally destructive firepower in four directions. I mean, that one requires quite a bit of skill to use properly. I mean, I tried doing it, but it just wasn't for me. But anyway, uh, I can go on and on about Twin Cobra. I love this game and I always have. Uh, but let's move on. Street Fighter. Now, this isn't Street Fighter 2. This will be in top 10s of 1991. Trust me, just be patient i will get to it this is the precursor this was the original uh i remember seeing this game for the first time in milford wreck um they got two street fighter machines and they were both the ridiculous um uh gigantic uh attack button you know that they would have and the harder you hit the button the stronger the uh attack would be and it would just it just did not work. <laughs> it wasn't in Milford Wreck for very long because people wanted to play Street Fighter back then, but that that button was just ridiculous. I mean, I think if I went and looked on uh, Wikipedia or looked up some information about the game, I think they figured out that it just wasn't, it was not a really good gimmick to have. And then they came out with this, the row of six uh, punch buttons, uh, you know, light, medium, and strong, depending on whether it was a punch or a kick. Um, the gameplay itself, even without that, was really rough. Um, you, of course, played Ryu, and you were going through every 
uh, enemy uh, to get to Sagat at the end because that was the that was the uh, the story was that you know the, at least from what I understand uh, Ryu was still discovering or trying to control his powers. Um, and during this tournament, he got through all of his opposition to face Sagat at the end. And, uh, of course, Sagat is this ridiculously tall, I think he's like seven foot five, um, uh, Thai kickboxing champion. And they would fight and, uh, basically Ryu couldn't control his power when he decided to dragon punch him for the first time. And basically scarred Sagat's chest and that started the uh feud between he and Ryu that you would see through all of the other uh Street Fighter uh games going from Street Fighter 2 into Street Fighter Champion Edition um going into um Super Street Fighter and so forth and so on all the way through um but yeah I mean this game it it had potential but I don't think that Capcom quite had the uh had it down yet but this was certainly a harbinger of what was to come later so yeah Street Fighter Shinobi this game oh my goodness <laughs> I can't even I can't even think about how many times I played this game in the arcades in the arcades in uh Bolorama uh Bolorama's game room in the news corner um almost every uh, arcade that I ever went to had Shinobi. Um, it was really, really popular. Um, you are a ninja on, uh, basically it's a side-scrolling platformer, side and side and vertically scrolling, actually, once you get to, like, level, like, like three, mission three or whatever. But basically you are trying to defeat the, uh, defeat the ninja master at the end. And you're having to go through his lieutenants, which are very difficult to defeat uh, uh, mid-bosses. Not mid-bosses, but uh, end-of-stage bosses. And they were... they were. This game was tough. You had to learn how to move, how to jump, how to shoot while you were jumping. You know, it, it taught you a lot of things. <laughs> and it was a really hard game to it was an easy enough game to learn how to play it you know but it was really difficult to master um i've only seen i've watched a video a couple of years ago on youtube of a guy who went through shinobi on i think like maximum difficulty and i think he set a world record or something like that but um it was it was a it's a great game i still mess around with it on uh emulation Okay, honorable mentions. 1943. Of course, this is the sequel to 1942. This one is a little... It's The, the premise is the same, but it's a little bit different in its execution. Um, now you're able to power up your fighter with different types of firepower, and that firepower only lasts for a certain amount of time. And, you know, it, now you're having to defeat... Uh, not only aerial targets, but now you go up against ground targets of different types, most, you know, ships mostly, but yeah, I mean, the enemies are a little different, you know, the scoring is a little different, but I found 1943 to be much more enjoyable than 1942, which could be really frustrating at times. 
uh, Alien Syndrome. Uh, this one was put out by Sega. This one was... I think they basically saw the movie Aliens, which had come out in 86, and um, they decided to just take the whole alien um, mythology and sort of uh, put their own spin on it. And it, they came up with this game, which was a lot of fun. Uh, basically, you're going through different uh, spaceships, uh, rescuing um, captured uh, humans from the aliens, you know, killing humans as you go, I mean, killing humans, killing aliens as you go through the various levels. And you have to basically rescue all of the humans and get off of the ship before the ship explodes. And I thought this was a great game, even though it's really frustrating. It's one of those games where, uh, like, let's say, Robotron, where you can fire in eight directions, but your enemy can move in, like, 64 or something like that. Just a ridiculous um, um, area of movement for the enemies. And, you know, sometimes you have to position and reposition your... Uh, character in order to kill the enemies with your fire but like i said um it is a great game it's just yeah you have to really know what you're doing in order to be really good at it um arkanoid revenge of doe uh this of course is the sequel to arkanoid which i talked about in i think episode uh, 16 i think and this one is you know, basically what it call what it uh what it says. Um the story is now that you are trying to exact revenge for what you went went through in the first game. And the level you know, like I said, this is a remix of breakout, a genius version or re remix of breakout I should say. Um you are going through various levels, um and the the levels are harder the you know, the it, the action is faster, and it's really tough. <laughs> I mean, I've only played Revenge of Doe like maybe like three times before I gave up on it because, as hard as Arkanoid could be, it would ramp up its difficulty on like a sort of a gentle curve. On this one, the the curve went to like from like one to like seven, <laughs> you know, in like the space of a level or two. And it was really tough, but, you know, I put it here because it deserves it. It's a really good, it's a good game in its own right. Okay, Bionic Commando. This one I was never really good at. Um, I think only, uh, um, it was either Connecticut Post Mall Arcade or Milford Rec that had it, but this was the only, but I played it a couple times and I just couldn't grok it. And I played it again in emulation just to, just to see if I could figure it out and I still couldn't crock it. I mean, it's a hard game. I mean, it didn't really get popular until uh the Nintendo Entertainment System version came out um a couple of years later, but um it is it does it deserves a shot not a shot. It deserves a spot on my honorable mentions just because of the popularity it gained. Okay, Blasteroids. This is the quote, the fourth, in my opinion, it's the fourth, or the third sequel to Asteroids. Uh, it went Asteroids, Asteroids Deluxe, um, Space Duel, which not a lot of people really realize is a sequel to Asteroids, but it is. Um, you know, so Space Duel, then Blasteroids. Uh, this one is not, um, uh, vector graphics like the previous three. This one is full raster. 
and there are different ways uh, to get through the things you need to do. I mean, it's the the uh, premise is still kind of the same. You're still flying around destroying asteroids, except now you're having to go go up against motherships every so often. Um, there are, I believe, three different um, modes that you can put your uh, fighter in. Um, one is your standard one. The one is a smaller version, which doesn't have as much firepower, or at least not as strong firepower, but it moves really fast. Then, of course, the, then there's the big one, which, of course, moves slowly, doesn't go very fast, um, but the firepower is enormous. And it's, it's a really interesting game. I never really liked it that much, to be honest. I think it went too far away from what Asteroids was, but, you know, it is what it is. You know, it's Atari. They just do what they wanted back in those days. Okay, Blasteroids. Uh, Dragon Spirit. This is a vertically scrolling shooter. Um, basically, you are a dragon trying to uh, get through various levels, uh, just like most vertically scrolling shooters of the day. Uh, the power-ups are very interesting. Um, one of them actually transforms your dragon into a two-headed dragon, and your firepower is just immense. Now you have um, aerial targets to deal with and ground targets to deal with. Um, it's a lot of fun to play. I've only, I only played it a handful of times in arcades. I never could find it, um, but... I did play it quite a bit in uh, emulation over the years. But yeah, it deserves a spot here because it's not only is it a, a, a fun game to play, even though it can get frustrating in cer at certain points, um, it's actually graphically very nice. It's, it's very well done. But yeah, so yeah, uh, Dragon Spirit. Uh, Galaga 88. Uh, this is the third sequel, to, or excuse me, second sequel to Galaga because it went Galaga, well, if we're going, going to be truly uh, historically accurate, it's the third sequel to Galaxian. Because it goes Galaxian, Galaga, Gapless, Galaga 88. Um, with this one, um, it's, not, it's not quite as frustrating as Gapless was, but it wasn't what I would call a lot of fun. I mean, it was pretty... You know, it was you know it was a lot prettier, and there was a lot to lot more to uh, the game. But I played it a couple times, and it's like, no, I just want Galaga. You know, and quite honestly, Namco was starting to get too cute. You know, and that's something that a lot of these video game uh, manufacturers fell victim to. They would get too cute with their sequels. You know, instead of uh, sticking with what worked about the pre you know about the game they're making a sequel about and just making it better. I don't think they made it better, but it's not a bad game. It's just not quite my cup of tea really. Gapless wasn't either to be if I was going to be a hundred percent honest, but either way, it deserves an honorable mention. Galga eighty eight. Uh Karnov. This game a lot of people love to play. Um let's see, I seen Karnov in Milford Wreck. I've seen Karnov in the News Corner. I've seen it at Carl Graf's record store and a couple of other places. And everywhere it went, people were playing it a lot. Um, I never was good at it. It's one of these games that just, it's really unforgiving. 
<laughs> and I just played it uh, a little while before I started recording just to kind of get, you know, get a feel for it and to remember how it was. And it is still brutally hard. It really is. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people who swear by it. Um, this game, even though it was like, you know, you get hit by something once and you die, there's still like fantasy RPG elements. There were items to find, items to use, you know, to get through various levels or to find things. And, you know, I appreciated it. I remember I used to watch somebody who would play it at the news corner, I think it was, and he was really good at it. And I would just watch him play it and... You know, that's how I learned the game, even though I was never good at it. So yeah, Karna. Pac-Mania. This is basically Pac-Man with more 3D elements and a isometric view. Same same uh, things, except for now you have a little bit of uh, a minor advantage in the game, is that you can jump over the ghosts. And, you know, you have to basically plan it in a certain way so that you jump over them and you don't jump too soon and run into them you know but or jump too late and you don't clear them you actually run into them before you're able to jump over them but same thing as uh pac-man uh you're going you know basically trying to clear the maze of dots and you're basically trying to lure the ghosts to power pellets you eat them eat the ghosts get your scores up and it just keeps going from there um it's, like I said, it's just a different take on Pac-Man, which actually was kind of fun, you know, now that you actually had something that would help you in that. But yeah, Pac-Man, yeah. Uh, R-Type. This is a vertically scrolling shooter. Um, it got moderate interest in the arcades from what I remember, but I mean, it really started coming into its own in the uh, home sectors. Um... I think they had an art, yeah, the R-Type I remember that really got everybody's interest was the R-Type uh, for uh, the Amiga of all, of all computer systems, the Amiga one, because that one had the processing power to really do the game justice. I think there was a one for the Commodore 64. I'm pretty sure there was, but it wasn't nowhere near as good as the uh, Amiga version, of course, because <laughs> the Amiga was like, three or four times the computer that the Commodore 64 was. But, um, and basically it's, it's an interesting take on the horizontal scrolling shooter. Um, and it was, it was pretty fun to play, but I never really got into it in the arcades. I think I played it like once or twice somewhere. I can't remember where, but it wasn't the scrolling shooter that really would trick, you know, you know, tickle my fancy, so to speak, but it still deserves a mention. Uh, the real Ghostbusters. <laughs> this, let's, let's, okay. Let me just talk a little history here. Um, of course, this is, this goes right along in stride with the actual Ghostbusters movie franchise uh, that started uh, back in, you know, started in, what, 1984? I think the movie came out um, and the funny part was is that in 1985 Filmation decided that they were going to do a Ghostbusters cartoon and of course everybody knew that it wasn't 
the real Ghostbusters, which is what everybody wanted. Um, the real Ghostbusters didn't come out, I think, in the cartoons, I think, until 1986. It's either they came out in late 85 or early 86, somewhere in there. Because I remember there was a bit of a uh, competition between these two, uh, these two uh, cartoons for quite some time. And it just, just to me, it was, to me, it was ridiculous. I don't see how Filmation got away with it, but somehow they did. I mean, I'll have to look it up in, you know, on Wikipedia or something, because I'm really curious now. But anyway, getting back to this game, this is a vertically scrolling uh, shooter uh, where you are, you know, it's a multiplayer shooter as well, where you take on the characters of Ghostbusters. And you're going through these various levels and going to defeat, uh, you know, various boss ghosts and getting through the level. And just basically going through the levels. And, you know, I think there's an end to it, but I'm not sure. I played it a little while ago and I got past the first stage, but after that, you know, I had other games to play, so I couldn't spend too much time on it. <laughs> to be honest, I spent way too much time playing Blades of Steel. <laughs> but anyway, um... But yeah, this one is much more true to the movie franchise, um, you know, and, you know, you've got your, you know, you, you know, you've got the familiar looking characters, you've got the right tech, and you've got various power-ups on the levels, and you actually have to, when you actually hit the ghost with your plasma gun or whatever it's called, I can't remember what it's called for life of me now, but once you hit it, hit it with the energy beam, they turn into actual ghosts that you can capture, and then once you defeat the level boss, the end of level boss, then you actually are able to store those ghosts, and you get points, and if you store, was I think it's a hundred ghosts in the uh, vault, you actually get a free guy. So yeah, I think there was no... Um, I don't think you got any free lives for a particular score. I think you had to just capture, you know, 100 ghosts and get your free guys that way. But, yeah, it was interesting to see. Road Blasters. Oh, man, this one. This one, everybody wanted, everybody loved playing this game when it first came out. This is a uh, combat racing game by Atari. Um... And it, I mean, it's base, it's futuristic. The graphics were interesting. You know, the action was fast. You know, it was fun to play. But yeah, the game could be just like a lot of games Atari put out in like the middle to late '80s. Is that they would just get so hard at one point where, you know, they're basically basically trying to eat your quarters or eat your tokens. Road Blasters was one of those games. I'm not trying to say that it should be like you know, ridiculously easy, but at the same time, you shouldn't have to, uh, you know, have to use pythons to navigate the learning curve on the game. So, I liked it. It was fun to play. It's just after, after I think, like, the first couple of levels, it just got really hard to the point of almost being unfair. You had to really be good to get past it and, you know, get through the various levels without running out of fuel, which would be game over, of course. Um, it was, it was fun and it was really, really well done from a graphical standpoint, but yeah, it was really hard. Super Hang On. Uh, of course, this is the sequel to Hang On. This one, this game now is much more involved, much more immersive 
because now, uh, in like Hang On or unlike Hang On and like uh, Outrun, which came out the year before, um, this one now had road, you know, roads that not only uh, moved left and right. Now you had to go up, go up over hills. You had to navigate curves with hills and so forth and so on. Uh, the action is a lot faster, even without the turbo button, <laughs> because the turbo button was there for when you were able to run your motorcycle up to maximum, or not, yeah, maximum speed, which I think is like 280 kilometers an hour, and then you would hit the turbo button, that would put you up, put you at like 324 or something like that, and the trick was using it on straightaways, and not using it on really steep curves, they'll send you just flying right off the side, and you run into a rock or run into a tree and whatnot, and that would be that. But, I mean, it's the same uh, premise as uh, Hang On. Um, the They had different uh, types of music and things like that, but, you know, it, I found Super Hang On to be just as much fun once you learned how to play it. Um, it took a little while for you to figure it out, but once you did, then, you know, you could have a lot of fun with that game. Uh, Tecmo Bowl. This game, I'm trying to remember the first place I saw it. I think it was Spanky's. I think Spanky's had Tecmo Bowl for a little while. I noticed they didn't have it for very long. But, um, you know, basically this is one of the first true football football arcade games you know, of the arcade era where you had uh, 15, you know, excuse me, it was 11 on 11. You know, it was, uh, you know, it was the offensive line. It was the running backs. It was the wide receivers, the defensive line, linebackers, corners, safeties, the whole thing. Um, it wasn't the, uh, it, it didn't really get a lot of attention. People were playing it. But, you know, after a while, I think they just sort of lost interest. It wasn't that interesting to them. I mean, it, the Tecmo Bowl franchise didn't come into its own until, you know, the Tecmo Bowl for the NES. And then Super Tecmo Bowl for the Super Nintendo. You know, I th that's when those, that's when that gaming franchise really became legendary. Rastin. This one is, I love this game. It was... I never was able to play it very often uh, because it wasn't easily found. Um, I think the News Corner had it for a little while and maybe one other location, which I can't remember. Um, but, of course, you are a uh, sword-swinging barbarian. You're going through these various levels to defeat monsters and to get to the end of the game, of course. This one had... A lot of RPG elements to it. Your character had hit points. So if you got hit by uh, an enemy or an enemy attack, it would take hit points off of your total. As you uh, completed levels, you, your hit points would go up. At least I think that's how it was. Um, I should have played it in emulation, but um, th I'm just going off of strict memory here. But... This one was fun because, like I said, it had a lot of D&D &D elements to it. And any video game, be it uh, arcade or home, that had Dungeons & Dragons elements to them, I was all about. So, you know, I was I would play this, you know, anytime I saw it somewhere and I had, you know, a quarter on me, I'd play it. 
uh, Final Lap. This is a game from, I think it was Nam, I think it's Namco, but this is one of the most, this and its sequel, Final Lap 2, these are the two most realistic, um, Formula One racing games that I've ever played. Um, I think these are more or less the sequels to, uh, Pole Position, um, because I, because, yeah, you're still running the same, uh, same track, which is a uh, Fuji International Raceway, and the graphics are a lot better, a lot more intense, it's more realistic, um, you couldn't whip the wheel around when you turned your car because you'd spin your car out, you had to learn how to gently move your car so that you wouldn't run into, uh, other cars on the track, and then you would have to learn how to control uh, how you would turn your car when you're hitting turns so that you wouldn't spin out or you wouldn't go flying off the track. And these games required a lot a lot of money to learn how to play, let me tell you. Um, the sequel to Final Lap, which is Final Lap 2, which I think came out in 1990? 89 or 90, but those, those, are, those are the ones I, would, I played a whole lot. I think I played the first Final Lap a couple of times in, uh, oh, I, I wasn't in any of the local arcades. I think I was, like, on a, uh, on a trip with my family somewhere, if I'm not mistaken. But Final Lap 2 was, was when I found, uh, a couple of arcades in downtown Vancouver. I went to Vancouver in 1989, and, um, they had a couple of really good arcades, in uh you know downtown which was you know i went down there almost every day when i was there and yeah i mean i played final lap 2 a lot and you know basically it was the same as final lap except now uh you could select uh different actually no i take that back it was sort of like yeah that's right it was kind of like what um daytona usa did they had linked machines um, and each machine had a different, uh, style of Formula One car. Like, you had a, um, uh, a McLaren, you had a, um, Ferrari, you had, uh, a couple of other, uh, uh, manufacturers that were, you know, you know, rocking Formula One at the time. And I love those games. I mean, golly knows how much money I spent when I was up there, but, you know, that's, neither here nor there. If I really like a game, of course I'm going to spend a lot of money on it if I could. So, anyway, those are my top tens. Um, you have any thoughts, uh, opinions, you know, some, you know, stories involving any of these games? Um, you know what to do. Get a hold of me. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, let's go on to time for some strategy. Time for some strategy. Defender. Okay, I did a um, uh, an RU experience segment back in episode four for Defender. 
Um, like I said, my first encounters were and with Defender were the uh, James E. Strait shows in, you know, uh, at Seaside Park at, in my hometown. And that game was just so radically different from anything else I had played up until that point. You know, it just captured a lot. It's captured my imagination and a lot of other people, too. Uh, Defender is one of the all-time, one of the all-time greats, you know, but anyway, um, I'm going to give you some strategies, <laughs> if you will, strategies for uh, playing and getting good at Defender. Uh, the first thing you need to learn is to know how to work the controls properly. Um, like I said, uh, Defender is really, really complex to play. Um, you have, on the left side, you have an up and down stick, which moves your ship up and down. And right next to it, you know, on a little bit of an angle, but right next to it is a reverse button, which, of course, reverses your fighter's field. Um, you have a fire and thrust button. Uh, fire, of course, fires your cannons. Uh, the thrust button, of course, sends your ship flying uh, horizontally, which your attitude can be controlled by the up and down stick. Um, then you have the smart bomb button, which destroys all of your enemies on the screen. And then you have the hyperspace button, which is a last resort uh, means of escape from a uh, difficult situation, if you will. And my whole thing was I very rarely used the hyperspace button. I only used it if my situation was hopeless because there was a really good chance that when you came out of hyperspace, your, your, your fighter would self-destruct and you'd lose a life. Um, so I only used it when there was no other alternative. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, and when you start the game, of course, you start on the first level. And you'll see either they'll either teleport in or they'll start coming down from the top of the screen. You'll see landers. Each lander you destroy is 150 points. Um, or And take that back. I'm sorry. It's 100. 100 points. Um, and these landers will come down all the way down to just above ground level of the planet that you're flying in. And of course, you have 10 humanoid lives scattered around the planet. And these landers will fly until they get to their designated, the, the humanoid that they're designated. Then they'll duck down and then they'll capture it and they'll start moving straight up the screen to reach the top. Um, once it reaches the top, the lander turns into a mutant and that humanoid is killed. And the landers, they're not that aggressive. Their, base, that, their mission is to capture humanoids. Once they turn into to mutants, however, they are extremely aggressive. And as you progress in the game, they only get more and more so. Um, so when you see a humanoid being captured, you want to fly over to that location as quickly as possible. Uh, try to line it up so that you're slightly above the level of the lander that's ca capturing the humanoid. Uh, and that lander will basically you just open fire. It'll run into your fire. You may have to dodge its return fire, but then the humanoid will scream and start to fall. Um, once you do that, you thrust down to where it is, you know, to pick it up. 
Um, while it's in midair, you'll get 500 points for that. And if you decide to return it back to the plant, get another 500 points. Um, so that's all that you face on the first level. Um, my suggestion is to try to just get through that level and destroy all the landers as quickly as possible. Of course, if you take too long destroying all the enemies on a particular wave, uh, baiters will start coming out. Baiters are these narrow uh, UFO-looking saucer enemies that are faster than your ship at full thrust. And they will basically chase you around, firing as they go, and they will try to destroy you. Um, the trick to destroying, to beating, to defeating baiters is when they get on the screen, um, what you want to do is the double reverse trick. Um, the way the controls are set up, um, the stick is... You basically move that up and down. You basically grip and grasp the stick with the fingers of your left hand. Basically, you want to keep your thumb off of the stick. You want to keep it like in a neutral uh, position. Because when you have to defend, the only way that you can do it and do it quickly is to flick that button with your thumb. And to defeat Baders, basically, you have to reverse twice really quick. It's like one, two. And the baiter will be confused for about a second, which will, if depending on your positioning, will might just give you enough time to destroy it. And the thing is, you can't get involved with shooting baiters either, because uh, after a while, they'll just start coming out like really fast and they'll overwhelm you. So in the first level, there are two different ways to get through it. Uh, either shoot, shoot all the landers as quickly as possible, or you can try to get greedy and go for points and try to rescue landers or rescue humanoids as the landers capture them. And then you um, capture and hold the humanoids uh, while you are um, flying around. You just hold on to them until you get to like maybe one or two landers left and then you just land them all and then you get a whole bunch of points. That's the trick to point press on uh, Defender, at least the first couple of levels. Um, then you move on to the second level. Um, with this one, now there are pods. Um, pods contain swarmers. Um, if you shoot a pod, you get a thousand points, but as soon as you shoot the pod, all of the uh, swarmers come out and they immediately start shooting at your ship at various levels. Um, the way to defeat swarmers is to let them sweep by your fighter and then you reverse immediately and thrust after them. Because they'll keep, keep, and if you do it right, you'll be an inch, maybe, yeah, maybe about an inch, inch and a half behind them. Then you can kind of line them up and shoot them. Um, if you let them get too far ahead of you when you reverse the second time, they'll reverse back towards you and start shooting again. Um, it's either that, or you can just fly straight through, straight through the swarmers and go about your business. Um, on this level, you also have bombers. Bombers are these little purple squares that fly in a certain direction. And as they're flying, especially once your, uh, fighter is in the vicinity of them, they'll start dropping mines in the middle of the air. And if you, of course you run into them, you'll be destroyed. 
Um, the trick to beating bombers is to... Oh, you can defeat them head-on, but it's you're taking kind of a risk because as they're flying, they're sort of modulating their altitude up and down as they're doing so. And unless you are really good at predicting where they're going to be flying, the best way to go is to fly through the formation, turn, uh, and shoot at them while they're flying in the same direction while you're avoiding the mines they lay. That's the easy way to do it. Um... Once again, um, now, as you're going through these levels, when the landers start capturing humans, uh, they start flying up towards the ceiling, or up, to, up towards the top of the screen faster. And as, you're do, as they're doing so, the mutants that spawn from them, they move almost as fast as your fighter does in a straight line, but they're also, like, weaving and dodging as they're doing so, which of course makes them a little harder to hit. The easiest way to defeat mutants, if they're flying towards you, you want to uh, get as far below where the mutant is and fly straight ahead, full thrust, and then uh, you want to basically, once you get a little distance, you want to come up, hit the reverse button, and just lay down a, a field of fire and hopefully you destroy it. And most often, if you don't, they're going to run into you or they'll shoot you and kill you. Um, so yeah, level two is the bombers um, and the pods. Um, level three, now they have multiple pods. They'll have three pods. And what you want to do is to fly to the location where they're all sort of intersecting because some will be flying in one direction and one will be flying in another direction. So the place where they intersect is where you want to go to that location and hit your smart bomb button. Um, sometimes if you're flying too fast when you hit the smart bomb button, it will release uh, swarmers. Um, if, you, if you do it in the right way, you'll pretty much destroy all of the pods and all the swarmers contained therein, which will give you a, a ton of points, which, will, which is good for getting your free, getting your extra lives. Um, most, uh, Defender Machines I've played, you get, uh, free lives every 10,000 points. I have played a couple of machines where it's been every 15,000. Um, but basically when you get a free life, you get a free life and an extra smart bomb. And now it's like I said, the action continues to ramp up and ramp up and ramp up the more levels you finish. Um, if you allow the last 10th and last humanoid to be captured by a lander and turned into a mutant the planet explodes and now all the landers that are left turn into mutants which is a lot of this is very difficult to deal with <laughs> um and let's see um yeah and it just continues on from there the landers move faster they shoot more aggressively at you uh, the best thing to do to kill landers is to fly down to about an inch or you know, maybe about a half inch above the surface of the planet and just hit the fire and thrust buttons together. You know, just do it that way because it keeps a certain velocity for your fighter going and it makes you a little more difficult for the landers to hit you, but 
you know, then you're also delivering fire in a certain direction. And of course, while you're thrusting along the surface, you want to sort of like move up and down just a little bit to vary where your, where your fire goes so that you can not only make yourself a little more difficult for the landers to hit you, but you also line up the landers as well. And um, another trick to kind of keep your to keep yourself going when you are in say the fourth wave because every five wave every five waves the planet uh the planet's population regenerates so let's say you are dealing you basically got through a le uh, level four where the planet got destroyed if you get through that level then you are able on the fifth level the planet regenerates and you have 10 more humanoids to protect um, when you finish a stage, um, you get a bonus of 100 points times, uh, the level of the, uh, times the level that you're on up to level five. I think it goes from like 100 points per humanoid rescued up to 500. I think that's how it goes. Um, so it's in your best interest to, to, uh, preserve as many humanoids as possible but if you're in a position where there's one humanoid left you can do what i call playing defense because every lander that on that level you know on that wave is going to go after that humanoid um and basically you want to base you don't want to fly too far away from the humanoid you basically just want to go and shoot the landers as they're approaching and that's one way to do it, to play defense. Just defend that one humanoid against all the other enemies and just take them all out. Um, the other way to play defense when you've got one humanoid left is let a lander capture it and you rescue it. And then you just fly around the rest of the level, uh, rest of the wave with the humanoid under your ship. That's the other way to do it. Um, and of course, uh, the action continues and continues until you lose all your lives and the game's over. Um, some other tips that I can give is don't go crazy with your smart bombs. Um, there are going to be times where, um, for whatever reason, you know, uh, the landers have captured a bunch of humanoids and there are a lot of uh, mutants flying around and they're all trying to take you out and you may have to use smart bombs to destroy them. Uh, you more or less want to save your smart bombs for uh the pods and for absolute emergencies uh any other things going on don't use it <laughs> you know rely upon you know your skill to deal with your enemies in the conventional manner let's see oh what else i think that's more or less it the last time I, the highest score I've gotten in the last like five years was when I went to Pinball Pete's. I think I talked about it in an on the road segment. I scored like 145,000 points or something like that. That's like the the best I've done at a Defender arcade machine since eighth grade, <laughs> since I was like 15 years old or 14, I should say. But anyway, those are my tips and strategies for Defender. Um, I could find some more tips from some of the uh, How to Beat Arcade Machine books that I have, but I'm just going off of what's in my head at the time. I know, I think I'm forgetting a couple of things, but 
I think I've got most of it out there for you to try if you're so inclined. Um, if you have any other tips of your tips of your own, <laughs> Mark, I know you're listening. I know you have tons of tips as far as this game goes. Um, if anyone else has anything, you know, they want to share with the rest of the community, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Another thing you can do is go to the Facebook page and just start posting. Um, I check that page daily. <laughs> I'm on Facebook every day, like I said earlier in this podcast. So, you know, if you, that's probably, aside from emailing, the best way to get a hold of me. And you could also co- contribute to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict uh, Facebook page, and we could get a community going, and, you know, let's see what happens there. But anyway, let's move on. It's time for an arcade review. Arcade Review, the Connecticut Pulse Mall Arcade. Um, okay, like I've said, I have five criteria for the for when I review an arcade. Those five are location, selection, ambiance, functionality, and value. Um, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, location, is it easy to get to? Um, is there plenty of parking when you get there? Things like that. Uh, selection. How many games do they have? Um, how varied is the actual selection? Because I can, the way I rate this, it you could have an arcade that's got maybe like 10 or 15 machines, but if they have a really good spread, meaning that uh, the selection of games from, you know, depending on air, you know, the games from, you know, from various eras, if they're all represented, I can give high marks for that. Um, but yeah, mostly, most of the time, if you've got a large selection of machines, yeah, you'll score points there. I'm not going to lie. Um, ambiance. Uh, let's see. Are there any other things to capture the attention aside from the games? Is there music playing over the PA? Are there pictures? Are there, is there artwork? Um, are there other things to kind of, for you to kind of look at and say, oh, that looks pretty cool? You know, things like that. I mean, also... To a lesser extent, is are the staff helpful? You know, are they? Do they not care about what you're doing? Do they not? Do are they actually attentive when you come to them with a problem, or do they just blow you off? (laughs) You know, let's see. uh, Functionality. Do the game? How the? How do the games work? Um, Do are they beat up? Do are the controls not quite standard? Are the machines in poor-looking condition? When a machine breaks down, does it take a long time for them to get it fixed? Things of that nature. Um, A well-maintained arcade will always get high points from me. And lastly, value. Do they run on tokens? Do they run on quarters? Are they a free-play model? Are the machines themselves more expensive to play? 
you know, are there other things in the in the place, like say um, vending machines, or um, maybe even a restaurant attached to it, or something like that? Are there other other things to make the experience better? You know, they're all in this category. So anyway, let's get on with it. Location, I give it a six. Uh, the Connecticut Post Mall is off of exit 39B on off of I-95. And so being that close to a major highway, it gets slightly above average marks, even though it, for me it was hard to get to, just like Milford Rack. When I reviewed Milford Rack, I gave it a six. I'm going to give this a six as well. Same, same marks. Selection. I'll give this a seven. Uh, the place wasn't big in size, although the management put as many machines in the arcade as they could. I think at the most they had somewhere between 30 and 40 machines, which is a decent selection for an arcade. I mean, for my personal, to call a place with video games a true arcade, I think you have to have at least 25 machines, uh, a bare minimum of 25. I mean, if you are one of a good arcade, you probably have up over 50. Um, but yeah, so I would call this just halfway a halfway decent arcade. But I give I give it a seven because um, not only they had a wide selection, but they also had games that Milford Rec didn't have. And I've said this about it when I did my um, arcade rundown about Connecticut Post Mall. That was one of the things that really made the place stand out, in my opinion. Um, it gave, you know, just because they knew, I think, they couldn't compete directly with Milford Rex, they said, well, let's do this. And I think that worked for them. Uh, Ambiance, I'll give that a six. Um, there weren't a lot of things to draw the eye, aside from the actual machines. But if I remember correctly, they had um, the same... Uh, radio station, which I think was WPLR in New Haven, uh, playing over the PA. So, you know, you had music going. And I think they had some black lighting too, but I can't remember 100%. There weren't very, there weren't that many times where I went there where it was at night. The only times I did where it was nighttime was when I was with Mark. Um, usually, if I was there by myself and it was nighttime, it was time for me to go home. <laughs> Because I had buses to catch or I had a train to catch. So, yeah, I had to get my butt right back on down the post road towards the train station to, you know, get on home. Okay, um, functionality. I'll give that a seven. There weren't that many machines that were out of order whenever I went there. Um, and the ones that were there were in good condition. It worked well. It seemed to me, at least, that the machines were pretty well tended and looked after. And to me, that's important for an arcade. It's just as well how the machines look as how they play. That's, at least to me, that's what I think. When you're running an arcade, yeah, your machines need to look decent as well as play well. So yeah, I'll give that a 7. And value, I'll give that a 6.5. Um, the arcade ran on tokens, and they would run the normal specials of the day. You know, five tokens for a dollar, twenty-five for five. Um, they didn't run the crazy specials that Milford Rec and Spanky's did, but it was still solid value. You know, you got your money's worth when you were there. Okay, you add all that up together, and you get a total score of six point five, above average.
The place couldn't, like I said, they couldn't compete directly with the juggernaut that was Milford Wreck, but they did something that was pretty smart, rather. They got machines that Milford Wreck did not have, which was saying something because Milford Wreck had uh, well up over 100 machines in the early to mid-80s, and they were only getting more, and it was just... <laughs> you could easily drop $20 in Milford Wreck and, and, and wonder where your money went. It made a nice, the Connecticut Post Mall made a good alternative to Milford Wreck. It was a great adjunct to it, and it made a good start to an arcade run. I mean, especially when uh, Gompers was open. So you basically had, in a four-mile stretch of the Boston Post Road, uh, going through Milford heading towards Orange, you had three arcades, like, right there. So you could go start at Connecticut Post Mall, go to... Uh, Milford Rec spend the majority of your time and money there, and if you were so inclined, you could just go to Gompers and, you know, play some other games that Milford Rec didn't have. And these three arcades were pretty, pretty important for that area, because back in those days, you know, the early 80s, going towards the mid-80s, uh, these places had, had a lot of business going on, even during the weekdays, which was important. The, you know, the Connecticut Post Mall arcade was a small place, especially in comparison to Milford Rec, which was huge and would only get bigger over the years. But it was pretty decent. Um, it was a nice place to go. I mean, of course, if you were shopping at the mall or your parents were shopping at the mall, they could give you, you know, two or three dollars and you could go to the arcade and spend, you know, spend it and have some time while your parents did shopping, which was a, what a lot of people did, apparently. Because there were a lot of kids in those arcades every time I went there. Um, but yeah, that's uh, the Connecticut Post Mall Arcade. If you grew up in the Milford area or you went to these arcades a lot back in those days, get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. I'd love to know what you thought of the place. You know, what you remember of it. Because I'm going strictly off memory when it comes to these places. And, well, considering... You know, that's more than 35 years removed, going on 40, you know. Yeah, my memory's not so great. <laughs> I mean, I have a decent memory, but it could, you know, when it comes to this stuff, you know, remembering back almost 40 years is kind of tough. But anyway, um, yeah, get a hold of me at, at arcadeaddictbryant at gmail.com. Let, let me know what you know. Okay, finally, we are going to go on to Home Systems. Stay tuned. There's no place like home. Hey guys, I'm going home. Look, this is not a game, Max. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Clear path! I'm going home! Home Systems. The Commodore 64. <laughs> I can't even begin to tell you guys the experiences I've had with this system. I own one. I've owned one since 1987. Um, but my experiences with it go right back to the year it came out in 1982. Um, but let me read some information. <laughs> some information. Who am I kidding? This is quite a bit of information, folks. So settle in. This is going to take a little bit. Okay, from Wikipedia, 
The Commodore 64, also known as the C64 or the CBM64, is an 8-bit home computer introduced in January 1982 by Commodore International, first shown at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas January 7th through the 10th, 1982. It is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the highest-selling single computer model of all time, with independent estimates placing the number sold between 10 and 17 million units. Wow. I knew they sold a lot of them, but that's just a whole other level. Uh, to continue, um, volume production started in early 1982, marketing in August for $595 US. That's the equivalent of $1,545 in 2018 money. Uh, preceded by the Commodore VIC-20 and the Commodore PET, the C64 took its name from the 64 kilobytes of RAM. With support for multicolored sprites and a custom chip for waveform generation, the C64 could create superior visuals and audios compared to systems without such custom hardware. The C64 dominated the low-end computer market for most of the 1980s. From a substantial period, from 1983 to 1986, the C64 had between 30 and 40% of the share of the U.S. market and 2 million sold per year, outselling IBM PC compatibles, Apple computers, and the Atari 8-bit family of computers. Sam Tramiel, a later Atari president and the son of Commodore's founder, said in a 1989 interview, quote, When I was at Commodore, we were building 400,000 C64s a month for a couple of years. Unquote. In the UK market, the C64 faced competition from the BBC Micro and the ZX, the ZX Spectrum, but the C64 was still one of the two most popular computers in the UK. Part of the Commodore 64's success was its sale in regular retail stores instead of only electronics or computer hobbyist specialty stores. Smart move. Uh, Commodore produced many of its parts in-house to control costs, including custom integrated circuit chips from Moss Technology. It has been compared to the Ford Model T automobile for its role in bringing a new technology to middle-class households via creative and affordive mass affordable mass production. Uh, approximately 10,000 commercial software titles have been made for the Commodore 64, including development tools, office product office productivity applications, and video games. C64 emulators allow anyone with a modern computer or a compatible video game console to run these programs today. The C64 is also credited with popularizing the computer demo scene and is still used today by some computer hobbyists. In 2011, 17 years after it was taken off the market, research shows that brand recognition for the model was still at 87%. Um, I could go on to uh, relegate the history of Commodore, which goes from its origins in 1981 going all the way to 1994, but I will not do that. <laughs> Uh, that's those the history is long um look it up on wikipedia it's a very interesting story but i'm going to keep it on a more personal note and i might as well start now like i said i was a commodore 64 owner from 1987 until i had to leave my things behind when i moved to florida in 1993 but my experiences with the system go way back and are numerous, almost too many to relate here or to even rack my brain to try and remember. 
Um, the first time I ever experienced a Commodore 64, I was walking through um, Reed's department store, and they had uh, a Commodore VIC-20, a Timex Sinclair, and a Commodore 64 in this little um, area to, you know, dire directly across from their TV department. And I remember just, I had some very, 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 very minor uh, experience using BASIC, which goes back to the CompuColor store that was in my neighborhood, but that's another story for another time. Um, of course, so I knew how to program... Uh, a never-ending loop of whatever I wanted to say on a computer screen, and I would do that, saying all kinds of, you know, <laughs> uh, shall we say, immature things. I mean, come on, it's 1982, I'm 13 years old, what do you expect from me? <laughs> um, so that was my first experience. Then I think in later in 1982, um, my friend Mark... Uh, he had a Commodore 64, and he um, started inviting me over to his house to hang out and so forth. And he had a Commodore 64, and he would show me all the games and stuff that he had. And he had quite a bit, actually. Um, let's see. Uh, smash cut to um, September of 1983. Or did he get it for Christmas? Now I can't remember. It was one of the two. Uh, but my best friend Robert, um, he got a Commodore 64 um, for... I want to say he got it for his birthday. Um, it may have been Christmas that year, but I think it was his birthday. Um, so um, I used to... You know, we used to go over... I used to go over his house, and we'd play games on it uh, after school. And, you know, uh, he didn't have very many games to start, but I would fix that <laughs> in later years. Um, after texting my friend Edgar a few days ago, uh, he got his system in the summer of 1985 uh, as a graduation present uh, when he graduated eighth grade. Um, let's see... And like I said, I got mine two years later in 1987. Um, by this time, uh, they were starting to sell the Commodore 64C, which was a little bit more ergonomically designed system. It was exactly the same uh, as a regular Commodore 64, except um, it had a wedge-shaped case and the... Uh, keys and the case were a light gray and the function keys were dark gray um like a, and it also had a uh a third party uh geo geos excuse me grab it had a geos program which kind of looked something like um the uh macintosh interface i mean it wasn't as uh, sophisticated, nowhere even close to sophisticated as a uh, comparable uh, Macintosh computer of the day, but it still looked nice. Um, I still have my Commodore 64. Um, it's in my closet as of right now. Uh, it still works. Um, the problem is 
um, the disk drives that I had when I originally, when my mother originally bought the computer for me, um, which were um, FSD1 hard, or not hard drives, <laughs> yeah, you can tell, it's been a while, uh, FSD1 floppy drives, which operated more efficiently than the 1541 drives because that was one of the problems with the 1541 is that they tended to overheat. Um, and, of course, that would lead to all kinds of uh, problems if you were, say, playing a game that had to access the disc quite a bit. Um, that would lead to problems with that. Um, my memories are, I have tons of memories of going over Rob's house, going over Edgar's, uh, house and playing games and, you know, having all kinds of fun as, you know, teenage guys tend to do as le at least geeky teenage guys. That is, um, let's see. I mean, the, I have a, a story time segment called a friendly competition, which is coming up. But to give you a little bit of a hint as to what that's about, um, some of the things that me and my friend Walter, who got also got a Commodore 64, I think he got his after I did. I think he got his in 88. Um, we, myself, Walter, Edgar, um, and a couple of mutual friends, we all used to get together at my house or at... Uh, Sometimes a couple of times at Walter's place and a couple of times at Edgar's place, we also used to get together and just have these massive um, game playing sessions, these competition games, uh, competition things where we would just pick a game like, say, Summer Games by Epics or, um, oh, let's see, Epics uh, Professional Wrestling. Uh, GBA two-on-two basketball, and we would have these massive, massive tournaments. And of course, you know how it is when you've got a bunch of you know teenage kids playing games against each other. Of course, you know we're you know trying to mess each other up, and the trash talking is flowing hot and heavy, and you know we're just having a blast no matter where we were at. Um, I remember. My friend uh, Dave, who was, he had an Apple II, he had an Apple IIe, I remember that. Um, him and myself and uh, Edgar, we used to go over Rob's house and we would play um, games like, uh, role-playing games like Fantasy. Um, and we would like take control of one particular character. We would like, it was sort of like playing D&D on the computer in games. We would take up one character and then we would, um, you know, take turns with our each one of our characters, you know, selecting actions and so forth. Um, and we used to play all kinds of games and, you know, compete and, you know, talk trash and all that kind of stuff. And I was just, I mean, I have nothing but good things to say about the Commodore 64. You'll never get me to say anything bad about it, because not only was it a great computer, and it was a wonderful, fantastic game machine. I mean, at that time, in the middle to late 80s, when the Nintendo Entertainment System had a stranglehold 
on the market and the only system only two systems that even lessened that hold were the Commodore 64 and the Sega Genesis which would come out in 19 what 88 or 89 one of the two um but yeah I mean and then one of the other things that you know I really begged my mother to do when I got my Commodore 64 when she was going to get it for me is that I wanted to get a modem because at that time um I had um knowledge of a multi-line chat system in our area called D-Dial and that basically was six Apple computers interlinked and all hooked up to six phone lines or actually I think it was seven because the actual sysops computer I think he had um I think it was seven because yeah you had the sysops computer which was on a separate line but um yeah I mean I was on that starting when I was going over Mark's house like in like what 83 84 something like that you know and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world because you actually got to talk to um other people in real in real time you know which was you know in its I mean there was nothing there's little else like it at the time we're talking like the early to mid 80s like from 83 until 85 or 86 and um that was one of the best things for that I've I loved about the Commodore is that, you know, their peripherals, like their disk drives, like their modems, you know, they were not horribly expensive either. Um, and then, of course, I discovered BBSs, and, you know, that also led to um, link parties on D-Dial, where we would link to New Jersey, New Jersey would link to, like, Houston, uh, Houston would link to, uh, Vancouver and so forth and so on. So you got to talk to people all over the continent, which was awesome because they, there wasn't anything like that back in those days, you know, that you really knew, knew about. Um, so the Commodore 64 had so, it was such a huge part of my life from 1987 until 1993 when I had to leave it behind when I moved to Florida. Um, I did grab all my stuff in 2005. It's with me now. It still works. I mean, aside from the fact the space bar is not... It, it just... Let's put it this way. When I was using it... Um, I used it a lot. Of course, I was using it on BBSs and chat systems and so forth. And the key contacts would wear out. And um, I had to take it to my friend John, who knew how to fix that. And, you know, and John, my friend John, who was like a major uh, contributor to like uh, software exchange, because that was a big thing back in the days, you know. Uh, if you knew somebody or you or if you were really good at, you know, good with the computer and you knew of places online that you could download stuff from, <laughs> mind you, it took a hell of a long time, even at like 2400 baud, you know. Um, but yeah, if you knew somebody, you'd just go over his house with like a, you know, 10 pack or 25 pack of uh, five and a quarter inch floppies and 
you know, you brought the programs you had and the games you had and you would, you know, you would share. And, you know, I've got hundreds, if not thousands of games for my Commodore 64. Um, I was actually thinking about um, going back through my uh, disc cases and finding out what kind of games I had just so that I could um, see if I could find these things, these games in emulation. I think there are at least a couple of websites just off the top of my head where I could find probably 85 to 90% of everything that I owned for the Commodore 64. But anyway, this is a wonderful, wonderful computer. This is historic in its place. Um, you know, it's, it has its place. It, like it said, it's the most, you know, the highest selling computer system or computer, uh, of all time as many as 17 million units around the world. That's crazy. I knew the Commodore 64 sold a lot, but I didn't think it sold that many. But that should tell you how popular that system was all the way into the 90s. Um, my buddy Edgar said to me when we were texting back and forth about it, um, he told me that he still keeps up with a bunch of... Uh, with um, some... C64 enthusiasts in Germany and you know when we were talking about it I asked him when did you get your system and then he told me and then we just started talking about all the stuff we were doing you know all the things that were going on and things like that but yeah the Commodore 64 is just a computer system that has you know a place in my heart and has you know op had opened up my world greatly um, I probably wouldn't be where I am right now if I didn't own a Commodore 64 back in the day. And that's just how it is. So um, I could go on and on and on about it, but I'm just going to leave it be for now. So, I mean, with I'm pretty sure there are at least a couple of people out there, you know, in my small but growing listening audience that have had a Commodore 64 or may even still have it. Um, you've got, if you've got thoughts and stories about your, uh, time with a Commodore 64, please, by all means, get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. All right, so this will bring episode 18 to a close. Uh, I will get this edited and I will get it out as soon as possible. And I will turn and look at episode 19 coming up soon. So again, stay tuned. Until next time, this is Brian saying, have fun out there, good gaming, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.